Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on Newstalk 770. Rob Breckenridge with you. If you missed today's show, we talked about housing prices in Calgary and whether policies that limit growth are making housing prices higher than they need to be. We also talked about the issue of police misconduct in light of the news that four Toronto police officers have been charged with perjury and obstruction of justice. Be listening to the show weekdays, 9.30 to 12.30 on Newstalk 770 and Newstalk770.com. All right, welcome back. Kincaid and Breckenridge on Newstalk 770. Got some more time for your calls coming up. Uh, we'll talk a bit about uh, pipelines. Uh, the federal government announcing some, well, I guess, tougher rules for the review of pipelines. It's going to delay some of these reviews like for Energy East and Trans Mountain. But I guess if you want to look at it as a glass half full kind of thing, you might say, well, all right, maybe it's going to take a little longer. But if the end result is that they're more likely to go ahead, maybe that's a good thing. So is that going to be the end result here? We'll talk about that later on and a bunch of other stuff to get to as well. Uh, I want to turn our attention right now. In fact, I believe this is uh, the, the 12th year of this survey. The Frontier Center for Public Policy does its International Housing Affordability Survey. Uh, Vancouver, maybe not a surprise, the third least affordable housing in this international survey. Uh, Toronto also uh, severely unaffordable. Uh, So where does Calgary fare? And how do we rank this? And what what drives that that unaffordability? Well, you can read this uh, report for yourself at uh, FC pp.org. That's the website for the Frontier Center for Public Policy. Joining us online is the author of this piece, Wendell Cox, joins us. Uh, Wendell, good to talk to you. Welcome to the program. Uh, happy to be with you. And by the way, give my give credit to my co- co-author, Hugh Pavlitich, in uh, in Christchurch, New Zealand, even though he's I'm sure he's not listening. <laughs> I suppose not. It's probably, gosh, what would it be? I'm guessing maybe the middle of the night there. Um, yep. But uh, all right, uh, some credit to, to Hugh. Uh, give us an overview. What, what is it that you're you're measuring here? How do you compile this in the first place? What we uh, do is estimate the uh, from various sources the median house price in metropolitan areas in nine countries uh, and the median household income, and we divide the median house price by the median household income. That's a price to income ratio we call the median multiple. In Calgary, that comes up to a, a figure of 4.2. That means the median uh, household would need to spend 4.2 times its median annual pre-tax uh, income. To, uh, to to pay for a house for cash, let's say, that ranks Calgary as moderately unaffordable, and and housing affordability has been going south in Calgary for some time. In 2004, when we first did this report, Calgary rated three. That means that house prices have gone up in Calgary 40 percent relative to income in a community where the incomes have gone up extraordinarily high. Now, at least until the until the recent bust. Now, um, uh, you you uh, so, so effectively you've had huge house price increases. And by the way, um, the house price increases you have stood in the last 12 years have been huge compared to the previous 30 years. In 1971, 
The median multiple in Calgary was 3.1. It was 3.0 in 2004. So you've got a real problem. You aren't to Vancouver or Toronto yet, but it's something worth being very concerned about. All right, so that number, so that's basically the house price to income ratio. That is exactly right. Okay. And so what, uh, for example, we mentioned Vancouver is, is third in this yes. survey. What's number one and two? Uh, Hong Kong with a median multiple of 19, 19. and Sydney with a median multiple of 12.2. Vancouver's 10.8. All right. Well, explain what drives this, right? Because it's not because home sellers in these communities are, are greedy, right? I mean, it's, it's supply and demand, isn't it? Well, no, it's not supply and demand. At least it's not unregulated supply and demand. Okay. It's huge regulatory influences which drive the prices up. For example, um, there's not a huge amount of difference between the price of building a house in Calgary and in Vancouver, even mm-hmm. though the median house price in Vancouver is more than double that of Calgary. Uh, and the difference is in the land, and the land prices are driven by regulation. The problem in the most unaffordable uh, metropolitan areas of the world is that they draw lines, urban growth boundaries, etc., around the community and say, you shall not build to the outside. Um, things haven't gotten so bad in Calgary, but I'm confident that after this bust passes, which we all hope will happen pretty soon, house prices will again begin rising strongly in Calgary because of the restrictions put on suburban development and exurban development by the city of Calgary through the Planet Program and its other land use policies. Uh, this happens all the time all over the world. So the basic problem is is that land is constrained unnecessarily by governments. It's rather as if, and I realize this is a terrible analogy, but Calgarians will understand this, it's as if tomorrow morning the Saudis were going to wait, woke up and said, you know what, we're cutting back oil production 90%. Look at what would happen to the price of oil. Well, the same thing is happening with respect to the price of housing. So communities constrain supply. Right. Obviously, demand is a different factor, but if they're constraining supply, that's going to skew that, that equation. Uh, exactly. And you can see a, great, the, a much better example because it's an older program than the Planet program in Calgary, but the Wind Government's Places to Grow program in the Toronto area, you have seen house prices go from a median multiple of 3.9 in 2004 to 6.7 now. So, I mean, you, you know, the, the, in fact, in 2004... You could buy a con- you could buy a single detached house in Toronto for less than you can buy a condominium today, and and part of the th- part of the purpose of all this, um, and I really can't get into it much here, but is is that the planning community is interested uh, not only in basically forcing people to live in much more dense conditions, densification, but they're also interested in moving people into smaller housing, and that's happening with a vengeance in places as you know, like Vancouver and Toronto. Uh, the data isn't so bad in Calgary uh, yet, but in the long run, um, should these policies continue and the economy of Alberta recover, which I would expect it will, I think you're going to see house prices march up pretty strongly. Okay, but if we took something like Manhattan, for example, like, you know, I mean, something that there, there's a limit, obviously, to, to how much real estate there is. I mean, Manhattan can only grow so much. Yeah, but that's like talking about central Calgary within a mile of the uh, of, of downtown. Uh, Manhattan is a part of a metropolitan area that has 20 million people and sprawls over about 
4,000 square miles, okay? Calgary sprawls over an area, uh, uh, forgive me for using square miles, but oh, that's, that's okay. my American. <laughs> uh, it, Calgary, just to give you an idea, uh, covers about uh, uh, 270 square miles. So again, uh, Calgary doesn't cover much land area. Uh, the point is that uh, uh, th- that when we look at th- we look at these things at the housing market level, which is the metropolitan area level, and yes, indeed, you can find places where house prices are hugely more expensive than the rest of the community. Go to, for example, English Bay in Vancouver, yeah. and 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 I'm sure there are areas in Calgary where the same thing goes on. We're looking at the housing market level because we're interested in middle income housing affordability, which is what median prices and median incomes uh, measure. Well, okay. So, so it's, it's not unusual that you'd have, say, an older neighborhood, an area that's limited by geography, there, that there's high demand to live there. That's going to drive up the price, right? Exactly. But does that, does that have a, a trickle-down effect where if that's well, setting does. a benchmark I mean, for a Calgary neighborhood, then oh. you're, you're not going to see uh, you know, an, a huge drop-off in, in other neighborhoods? Uh, no, no, no. The, the, the point is the metropolitan comparisons, okay? People move between uh, cities in Canada and, and one of the big issues in, in international research on migration between cities is the house is the median uh, priced house uh, you know in, in the metropolitan area. So yeah, you, we could talk for hours on on uh, housing affordability in neighborhoods of Calgary. Mm-hmm. I'm interested only in the metropolitan area. Okay. Because that I can compare to Vancouver, I can compare it to Portland or Atlanta uh, or or Sydney, etc. Well, it's because when you talk about metropolitan area, I mean it exists to some extent in Calgary, and that you have some surrounding communities. I know it's it's for a lot of U.S. cities. There's considerable metropolitan areas, so there's surrounding areas, surrounding communities that have different municipal governments would have different rules in place. So what's the effect of that? Because if Calgary has Airdrie and Okotoks on its doorstep and they've got different rules about housing development, does, does that put downward pressure on, on prices in the overall area? Not much because the problem with Air, Air, Airdrie and, and Okotoks is that they're a bit too far away from Calgary. Uh, what we have going on, see, the, the way the with the Unicity government in Calgary with the large land area relative to the metropolitan area, uh, the city really controls land use almost like as if it were a metropolitan area. In the places around the world where you have the worst housing affordability, you have regional approaches uh, to land use planning. For example, in Portland, there's Metro. In Vancouver, there's Metro Vancouver. In Sydney, the state government does it. Uh, so, so the basic point is, uh, in most of the U.S. cities where the housing affordability is far better, you do not have these these regional structures. You have municipal structures, and uh, it's very difficult to do the regional approach, even though a lot of planners would like to do it. So the fact is, where housing affordability, where housing affordability is bad, and this is the case also in Toronto with the Places to Grow program, and in Montreal with the Agricultural Preserve, you've got regional approaches that basically shut down the impact of differing municipal regulations. Now, then in terms of cities who, who do this well, because you know I, I would look at, say, a city like Detroit probably fares well for affordability. I don't know that that's necessarily a, a city a lot of people would want to live in. Well, again, Detroit's gotten an awful bad reputation because if, if you if you haven't been there, you don't live there, and I don't. 
uh, you don't realize what's going on in Detroit. What happened in Detroit is everybody moved out in, out of the city. You had incompetent government that basically drove people out of the city, and they all live in the suburbs now. And mm-hmm. believe it or not, the suburbs of Detroit are very nice. But yes, Detroit is one of the more affordable, but you also have places like Cincinnati, one of the most delightful cities in the United States that's very affordable. The Texas cities tend to be affordable. Atlanta, which for 30 years was the fastest growing metropolitan area of more than 5 million uh, in, in the first world. Uh, has uh, good housing affordability and so on. So there are a bunch of uh, of cities that have good housing affordability. Well, and that's important to know because maybe there's a sense in Calgary that it's it's inevitable, that people just want to live in Calgary, prices are what they are, and it's kind of out of our hands. What you're saying, though, planning matters, policy matters. Well, and the basic point is if everybody wants to live in Calgary, and by the way, let me tell you, I think Calgary is a wonderful place. It's one of my favorite cities, and I think what's gone on in the downtown area is just incredible. But at the same time, one has to recognize if truly people want to live in the dense conditions of downtown Calgary or even inside the Calgary city limits, why do you have to not let them live to the outside? And that's the situation right now. And, and so the, the basic point is let people decide where they want to live uh, and, and go from there. And, uh, you know, it's worked very well all over the place. And we've, if, if you look at the history of housing affordability in the nations that we look at, the nine nations, what you find is that housing tended to be three times incomes or less until the coming of this, this urban containment, uh, it's called by a, a number of other names, uh, strategy, or in the, in the city of Calgary, of course, it's called Planet. Well, of course, that, they, that gets called sprawl. And as you know, I mean, there are a lot of people in Calgary and other cities who, who advocate against sprawl. They say sprawl is bad for the city, uh, that it's costly to the city to have to build infrastructure to service these far-flung neighborhoods. What would you say to, to that? Well, first of all, it is an absolutely bogus argument to suggest that that it cannot be afforded. And I'm not saying sprawl is good. I'm saying, uh, listen, we haven't even defined sprawl. I can show you cases on the Internet where... Uh, where, where Dhaka, Bangladesh, which is the most densely populated urban area in the world and has a population density approximately 30 times that of Calgary, is called sprawling. Nobody has really defined that well. The problem is not sprawl. If we're concerned about sprawl, we're concerned about the wrong things. The, the, the most important domestic priorities uh, are to improve the standard of living and to reduce poverty. And when you increase house prices by 40% in 12 years, you have reduced the standard of living and you've driven more people into poverty. And, and besides that, one should also know, I'd like to compare Calgary, for example, to Charlotte, which in, as an American city that in, in some ways is at least functionally similar to Calgary. It's the only city in the United States that built, that has built a brand new central business district since World War II, like Calgary and Edmonton have done. Well, you know what? Charlotte is the closest uh, urban area in the United States to Calgary in population, according to the last census, 1.25 million people. Mm -hmm. Charlotte covers an area three times that of Calgary. And you know what? Things are going on just fine in Charlotte. So this this infrastructure argument is largely bogus. It is it it is pushed uh, by you know by people who uh, you know are not willing to allow the development of independent suburban municipals around the city. You know one of the great advantages about the multi-jurisdictional metropolitan areas that exist not only in the United States but 
say, for example, Paris, where you have 1,300 governments in the urban area, is that there becomes a competition because, between these uh, places for development. And that keeps prices down. But if you only have one city, there's no, there's no competition. And so uh, you, you tend to get far better infrastructure costs where there are multiple local governments. That wasn't clear, by the way, in the 50s or whenever it was when the unicity model, uh, you know, that created uh, the big cities of Calgary and Edmonton, uh, uh, you know, occurred. Well, people can read this uh, report for themselves, fcpp.org. Wendell Cox, thank you so much for joining us here today. Appreciate that. Thank you. All right, take care. Uh, Wendell Cox, a noted uh, urban planner and academic author, (laughs) co-author of this uh, study for the Frontier Center for Public Policy on uh, housing affordability and which cities are the most affordable, which are the least. And uh, Toronto and Vancouver right up there. Calgary, as he said, may be more expensive than it needs to be. In wake of these charges, I've put together a team of professional standards investigators to scrutinize other cases in which these four officers have been involved. The team's job will be to see if there are any other cause of concern. All right, welcome back. Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Uh, I'm Rob Breckenridge. Roger Kincaid uh, off until Monday. Uh, that is a man who's having a very bad week. Toronto Police Chief Mark Saunders on the heels of the James Forsillo case and this constable who was found guilty of attempted murder. Uh, now we're today of four Toronto police officers charged with perjury and obstruction of justice, accused of planting heroin in a suspect's vehicle and then lying about it on the stand. As you heard the uh, the police chief there say that that's they're not going to investigate other cases that these four have handled. So it begs the question: Are these the rare examples of police behaving this way? Is this more common than we realize? Do we have procedures and policies in place that can root out this kind of misconduct and bring the perpetrators to justice? Uh, our next guest uh, has some thoughts on all of this. David M. Tanovich, a professor of the Faculty of Law at the University of Windsor, also co-editor of the Canadian Bar Review. Professor, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for inviting me, Rob. All right. Well, this is something you, you've written about, and especially, you know, the rarity of a perjury charge against a police officer. What stands out to you about what we're learning about this case? Well, indeed, it is very rare in Canada for police officers to be charged with perjury and what makes that troubling, particularly in, in, the, in the recent context, is that we've seen a number of cases, dozens in fact, of cases where trial judges have called out officers as liars, as fabricating evidence, and yet we haven't seen really any accountability. This is the first time um, in a long time that, uh, that we've seen some, some accountability um, with, uh, with the charges, and I think that's a really important development. Yeah, I guess we have the Robert Chukansky case. That, that's an obvious example of, yes, and, you know, of officers, officers accused. Were yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, but, but in this case, what's more troubling, it's not just police lying. The fact that the police were accused of planting evidence here. That's right. I mean, that's, that's terrifying. That's right. So that's another um, element of the, of the case. Many of the other cases um, where the police have been called out, it's that they've lied about the reasons for the stop, the search, attempts to justify I mean, in most of these cases, almost most of these cases, um, you know, it's a situation where the police have found evidence, contraband, drugs, or uh, a gun, and uh, but didn't have um, a constitutional basis for the search or the stop, and so then create evidence um, in order to, to to create reasonable grounds or suspicion for the uh, for the interaction. Now, how do these sorts of things get brought to light? Because 
it seems as though that would be very difficult to expose this sort of thing. Well, historically, judges were very reluctant um, to find uh, or call out a police officer for having lied um, in court. Um, and so it was, it was very difficult. Now we have a number of cases um, over the last few years, uh, particularly in Toronto, um, and the greater Toronto area of courageous judges who have called out and said to, to officers, I find that you lied. You deliberately fabricated your evidence. You concocted your evidence in order to justify your conduct. And so, um, you know, now with these exposures and also the Toronto Star did a big expose looking at uh, 100 cases uh, across Canada involving um, uh, police misconduct in terms of uh, fabricating evidence. Um, the, the issue, I think, has, uh, has come to light in Canada. Yeah, I mean, especially this case in Toronto, just reading the Toronto Star coverage, so even the judge in this case called it inexcusable deceptive conduct. That's very strong language. It was, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the fact that he, and the fact that he was prepared to conclude that the officers planted the evidence, that was also an extraordinary uh, finding as well. Now, again, not to, to excuse this, clearly, but to try to understand why this might be happening. Is it the pressure on police officers to deliver results? Uh, or what could it possibly be? Why, why would we see this kind of behavior? Is it just lazy police officers looking for shortcuts? Well, they're certainly human, and, and they certainly believe, and we, sometimes this is referred to as noble corruption, the idea that we've got the bad guy. We found the drugs. We found the gun. We want to make sure it sticks. Yeah. And so we're gonna we're gonna you know tell falsehoods in order to ensure that the evidence doesn't get excluded. So this you know person doesn't um, you know get away with it. And so there, there's part there, there's there's a lot of that going on in terms of officers thinking they're doing the right thing um, by ensuring that this person's brought brought to justice. But the problem, of course, is, you know, in many respects, it is lazy police work that, uh, and also police work that relies on, on stereotypes. Most of these cases, I'd say an overwhelming majority of these cases where judges have called out police officers as lying, fabricating evidence, no grounds for the stop or search, involve black or racialized individuals. And so there's a real concern that this just is evidence of a, a pattern of, of profiling. And, of course, in the vast majority of cases where it happens, nothing's found. And so there's very little uh, remedy for, the, for those individuals. And so that's what is another troubling aspect of this, uh, of this issue. Right. And in, in a lot of these cases, it's requiring on the, the, the word of someone who's believed or presumed to be a criminal in the first place. Right against the word of the officer, and yeah. uh, historically, uh, if, you know, not surprisingly, the, um, there was enhanced credibility for for police officers, which which you know made it difficult for any accountability, whether it's cases where there were allegations of lying or cases of you know excessive force, um, which is one of the reasons that the Forsyth verdict was was so important. And what we're talking about, I mean, the Forsyth verdict obviously was, was some very serious charges, perjury and obstruction of justice. Those are criminal charges. Is there more of a tendency, though, to, if possible, handle these things internally? You know, so this officer was internally disciplined or he was suspended or he was reassigned. Are criminal charges quite rare? They are rare. One of the problems, of course, is we don't know uh, oftentimes one of these officers. Um, and the other troubling thing about this case, um, the Tran case, uh, was that you know, these officers are senior officers. Many have been on the force for um, you know, more than 10 years. And one of them appears to have been demoted um, from sergeant to constable, and so we don't know why that is. Um, it may be that there, there, are, there are other 
other cases that that he was in, involved with. So that's a you know that's a problem. We don't know what's happening um, internally. One of the things we do know in some of these cases is when the, when a judge finds that an officer deliberately fabricated their evidence, it's not often the first time this officer's been rebuked um, by the courts. And the fact that they continue to testify um, is also a troubling aspect of the uh, of the problem. Well, and you know, as Toronto Police Chief said this morning that they're going to now look at other cases involving these officers. I mean, it would seem unlikely that these officers did it only once and got caught that one time. I think that's right. And I, and I commend the chief. I mean, I think this is a really important step that he's taking um, in bringing accountability um, to the service. What I'd, what I'd hope for is that he'd also broaden the inquiry so it's just not these four officers. But clearly we've got these other cases um, where the, we have judicial findings of police officers lying and uh, the officers have been identified. And the hope would be that this uh, special task force would also look at these cases and these officers. Well, and that's part of the problem is that, you know, it comes down then to police investigating police. And, you know, I know there are different police forces who are brought in and, and that sort of thing to, to take away that appearance of conflict. But there, there's no avoiding that, is there? It's going to be police investigating police. That's right. I mean, for, for, for efficiency purposes, um, it, it would be difficult. Um, I mean, we, we do have in Ontario, we have this, the, you know, the SIU, the Special Investigation Unit, to investigate serious cases of death and, and uh, um, serious bodily harm. But by and large, it, you know, it is the police. One way to, one way to sort of uh, have some independence, and I've, I've suggested that the, the um, Minister of Community and Correctional Safety um, might consider this, and that is to, to hold a public inquiry. We've had enough of these cases, enough of uh, judges finding police officers to have lied and to, uh, to warrant a, a broader public inquiry to look at the scope of the problem and to come up with uh, measures to, to address it. I did want to ask you about the Forsillo verdict, sure. uh, because it, it, it seems unusual. I think a lot of people were scratching their heads that you know someone could be found guilty of attempted murder when they actually did kill the, the person in question. Uh, I don't know that either side was satisfied with that verdict. What's likely to come of this? Well, um, I think there certainly will be an appeal. Um, I mean, uh, you know, his defense lawyer, Peter Browdy, has indicated that he's going to bring a stay of proceedings, an abuse of process motion, arguing that, that he was just following his training. Um, I don't think that, or that, that, uh, that motion has any chance, the, the idea that somehow um, the police are trained to, in cases like this where the person's lying on the ground to fire six times. I mean, that's, that's frankly absurd. So I don't think that motion's going to go anywhere. Will there be an appeal? Absolutely. There's the issue of the mandatory minimum. Um, that's likely that's likely to be, to be challenged, um, but we'll see. It'll it'll be a few years before um, we finally have a resolution to the case. It, to a layman, it seems illogical, uh, but from from a, a legal standpoint, is is there some logic in in the verdict? Yeah. So from a legal <clears throat> excuse me legal perspective, it makes perfect sense um, because there were these sort of two uh, two volleys of shots. The first three and the medical evidence. Uh, was that it was one of those three shots that caused his death. And then you had six shots fired after that, and the evidence was none of those shots contributed to his death. Had the evidence been that one of those six shots contributed to his death, he would have been found guilty of, of murder. So it was a causation issue, um, by and large, that, 
that uh, that that was the was the the reason for the attempted murder. So the jury must have had a doubt with respect to the first three shots in terms of his justification. Uh, they must have had a doubt about whether he was acting in self-defense. Crown had to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he wasn't acting in self-defense, and the jury must have had a doubt. And so, you know, acquitted him of, of murder in relation to um, those first three shots. But then for the next six shots, we're satisfied he intended to kill him. But the, because he, they didn't cause his death, it had to be an attempted murder. Yeah, because I think some people look at this as the jury trying to find a compromise in this case. But juries can't really do that. I mean, it, it seems to me that either, you know, you're, the person's guilty or not guilty of that particular charge. And they got to assess that on, on the evidence. I think if they had come back with a manslaughter verdict or an aggravated assault verdict, that would have been clear evidence of a compromise in the sense that it was hard to see how it would be manslaughter. It was either an intentional killing or, you know, which would either have been murder or attempted murder. So any of those two other secondary verdicts, I think, would have been a compromise. It's, it's hard to know. Clearly, he was guilty, you know, at a minimum of attempted murder. And then the question was, was he also guilty of murder with respect to the first three shots? And the jury had a doubt. Interesting. As you say, I don't think we've heard the last of that. Uh, we'll leave it there. Uh, David, sure. thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate the insight on this. Great. Thanks for inviting Take me. Care. Take care. Uh, David Tanovich is a professor of law at the University of Windsor, co-editor of the Canadian Bar Review. Uh, wrote a piece recently on, in fact, the issue of police who are caught lying and what kind of prosecutorial oversight exists in, in dealing with these cases. Does it happen more than... than you know, then these stories that they come to light would indicate probably is it widespread now that that's taking another leap. But to suggest the cases we know about are the only cases where it's happened would, I think, be naive. It's interesting what he said about this concept of noble corruption. It's funny how this this uh, this documentary that everyone's obsessing about this uh, making a murderer it calls that to mind immediately. Right, the suggestion in the shell that police were pretty convinced that they have the bad guy. And to make sure that the case doesn't fall apart, to make sure this guy doesn't get off on a technicality or, or slip through the noose here, so to speak, we'll just pad the case a little bit. There's nothing wrong with that because we got the bad guy in the first place. Is there that temptation? I mean, there would seem to be what's uh, at play in this, this case in Toronto that's now come to light. That they planted heroin in this guy's vehicle. But it's in some ways it's surprising that, that they got caught. It's surprising that it came to light. Because what do you start with? You start with someone who's already under suspicion. And they say, well, how did that heroin get in your car? Well, I don't know. A cop must put it there. It seems far-fetched. And that person's not getting the benefit of the doubt to begin with. So in some ways it's surprising that this ever comes to light. So a lot of focus now on how Toronto responds to this. This is not a case that the Toronto Police Service can sweep under the rug and just say, oh, those guys, yeah, they got um, you know, suspended, uh, they're fine. These are serious criminal charges they're facing. 